Good morning, everybody. Um, we want to extend an invitation to the children up through third grade if you'd care to join uh, your teacher for children's church. It's just an age-appropriate setting where they're going to look at the scriptures. Uh, if you want to keep your kids here, that's fine, too. Um, welcome to do either one. Um, and as they're going, um, let me uh, just begin to open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we sang to you, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake and rise up from the grave. And Lord, that is really just the message of Easter is that Christ has destroyed death by dying and now invites us to come awake, to come to him and to walk in newness of life. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we look into your word, as we hear what Paul has to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that affects us. Lord, be glorified, we pray. And Lord, I want to pray for other churches in the Antelope Valley that are preaching this morning the gospel of your resurrection, the good news that you rose from the dead. Lord, would you send a measure of your spirit to all of the congregations that are being faithful to your word this morning? And I pray that, Lord, you would spark in all of us an awe at the resurrection, stunned silence at times, joyous raising of hands and crying out loud. Lord, may we, as your people, be amazed at what you've done on our behalf. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be with us now as we gather to hear your word. Help us to hear and to understand. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So on Good Friday, we did a service called the Tenebrae service. And some of us were here. We darkened the room. We have four candles up front, and we read through the Passion narrative. What that means is Mark 14 and 15, where Jesus is betrayed and crucified. And at the end of the service... There's one candle left burning, and we read, the narrator reads to us the account of Joseph of Arimathea taking Jesus' body off the cross, laying it in a tomb, and then rolling a stone in front. And the last candle's put out, and that's it. Nothing after that. No singing, no message, no invitation, end of service. And I've had a couple people tell me that this, this year when we did it, it was really moving, and it really did impact me this year to think of the finality of this stone rolling in front of that tomb. And our intention in doing Tenebrae is when the disciples saw this happen, they were terrified. Jesus was their master. He was the Messiah. He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And now he's laying dead in a tomb, and they're just in utter shock. So all of Saturday, they, they must have just been sitting on their hands going, what do we do now? Our master's gone. So that... On Sunday morning, when they find out that the stone's been rolled away, Jesus isn't there and an angel says, he has risen like he told you he would. You can imagine the explosive joy of that. And so that was our hope in the Tenebrae service was to prepare us for Easter Sunday so that we would be overwhelmed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so uh, Paul read from, uh, for us from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, we stop about halfway through. It's almost an odd place to stop, but I'm a big chicken. And so I didn't want to get into some of the harder parts of it, talking about uh, baptism for the dead and some other stuff. So I just chickened out and said, we'll stop here. Actually, it was a similar kind of experience to Tenebrae. Tenebrae had that finality is that stone is rolled in front of the the tomb and the lights go out. Um, This, I thought, had a really beautiful finality, too, because at the end of the reading, it says that, um, I want to get it right, 26. There it is. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Isn't that tremendous good news? That just seems like a great way to punctuate this in anticipation of that. 
So uh, we're going to look at this first half of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And I got to tell you, I said I'm a chicken. I'm also not a very bright chicken because I decided to do chapter 15 anyway. 1 Corinthians is just notoriously hard to understand. And the reason it's hard to understand is because we're listening to half a conversation. It's like you're listening to somebody talking on the phone and you can't hear the other person. Because what's happened is the Corinthians had been evangelized by Paul and then he moved on. And then they write him a letter and they said something. We don't know what they said. We don't have that letter. And so what we get is Paul's response to that letter. And so as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, it seems to change subjects randomly, just for no reason. All of a sudden we're on this new thing. And what it is is it's Paul answering their letter. He's writing back to them. And so we're hearing half the conversation. We don't get the whole thing. Um, so some commentators tend to think, well, it's just this jumble you know, of, of ideas. But it's really not. Uh, Paul is way too smart to just throw random answers at stuff. There's a theme that he's got going through 1 Corinthians. There, he's answering a problem that the Corinthians had. Something that's really distorting for them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's answering this one continual theme through the book. If I've diagnosed it right, I think the theme that he's addressing is their misunderstanding of the body, the human body. What happens to the human body? What is the human body all about? The Corinthians were in Greece, so they were Greek. They thought like Greeks. They had grown up in Greek thought and Greek philosophy. And so their approach to the human body was from a Greek perspective. And the Greek perspective at that time on the human body was it doesn't matter. <laughs> the matter doesn't matter. It's not important. What's really important, what really defines you as you, is your spirit. And a human being is really a spiritual thing. And the body is just this temporary container. At some point, we'll shed this container, and we'll be free, and it'll be great. And that's a Greek way of approaching the understanding of the body. So why do I get that? Where do I get that from? Well, I think the clearest place is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking a lot about sexual purity sexual immorality. That was a problem. You see, the, the Greek approach, since the body doesn't matter, there were two different approaches. One was the stoic. You, you, the body doesn't matter. You, you beat the body into submission, and you just take whatever comes to you, and, and you keep your soul pure, but you, the body can just rot away. It doesn't matter. You just beat it into submission. That was the stoic approach. If you want a beautiful, beautiful picture of the stoic approach, watch the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe. He is the champion stoic in that. Nothing bothers him. He plunges ahead through life. And that's stoicism. The other one, though, said, well, wait a minute. The human body doesn't matter. It's going to be gone anyway. So indulge it. Have a blast. These are what's called the Epicureans. And so they would just do anything that, that you know, if it felt good, do it. You know, whatever the body wanted, it doesn't matter. It's going to burn up and be gone anyway. So indulge. And so it seems like the Corinthians may have been kind of leaning in that direction. Uh, because there was this degree of sexual immorality in the church. And so in chapter 6, Paul is beginning to address it, and he says things like, in, in verse 15, Do you not know that, the body, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So he, he, you see how he's going for the body here and the sexual immorality. But just a few verses before that, he says the oddest thing. It just really doesn't make any sense when you're reading through it. In verse 13, he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both of them, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, 
but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, if he's in the middle of talking about sexual immorality, what is up with the food in the stomach? Where does that come from? What I think he's doing here is he's saying, look, he quotes, if you're looking at the ESV, it's got quotes around that first part. What he's doing is he's quoting to them, here's your slogan. Here's the, the banner of your philosophy. The food for the stomach and stomach for the food doesn't matter. God's going to destroy them both. So he quotes that to them, and then he brings it back, and, and he says um, that God, that's true, God will do it, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So he begins to counter that. So that's kind of his thesis, I think, kind of winding through the book of First, uh, uh, First Corinthians, is he's addressing that issue of what about your body? And, and sometimes we can get that approach too. We get this idea, what really matters about me is my spirit, not my body. But what we're going to see Paul do here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is he brings this argument really to its greatest crescendo. This is where he really puts his cards on the table. Your body matters. You're going to have it for eternity. And it's not something that's, that's not part of you. It's not something disposable. It's really and vibrant. And so what he's going to do to tell us this, to teach us about this, is he's going to cover three things. The first thing he's going to say is the resurrection gospel. He's going to tell us about the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. It's the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He reminds them of that. He puts that forward. The next thing is he's going to ask the question, what if Christ isn't raised from the dead? What if that's true? And he's going to unpack that for him. And then he's going to bring it back at the end, and he's going to say, because he lives. Because it's true that Jesus lives. So he pushes them to a certain point to say, take your, take your philosophy serious and follow it to its logical end and see where it leads. It's not good news. And instead, what we're going to learn is we're going to pick up along the way the good news about what Jesus' resurrection did for us. What is it going, how is that going to affect us? So he starts out, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he puts that caveat at the end, and he says, okay, remember the gospel. I'm going to remind you of the gospel that was preached to you. Now, do you believe it? That's the gauntlet he's throwing down. Do you believe this gospel to be true? I know you said you did. Did you? Let's see. So here's the gospel. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is something that, that the commentators think was a creedal statement in the early church. What do you mean by creedal statement? A creedal statement would be a set of truths that are repeated, that are stated. So have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? That would be a creedal statement of the, the gospel. It's a way to say it. Um, and so the idea is this, is this is something that Paul picked up, something that everybody would be familiar with, is these truths, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was in the ground three days, and that he rose in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the Twelve. And this would be something that the church would confess regularly. They would say together, these are true things. This is something that's absolutely secure. But then he keeps going, and he adds some more to it. He adds on as he carries this creedal statement forward for us. So he says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So he carries it out. He says, not only is that true confessionally, it's true experientially. So um, let's go back and unpack this a little bit. One of the things he says is that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We're familiar with, with Old Testament, right? Because they didn't have the New Testament here. We're familiar with Old Testament passages that talk about Christ's death. Isaiah chapter 53, the, the suffering servant, beautiful picture of the suffering of Christ. He died for our sins by his stripes. We have been healed. He bore our iniquities. So we get the idea from Isaiah 53 that, that Jesus died for our sins. Similar thing with Psalm 22. It tells this picture of I'm surrounded by dogs and they've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. It's this very graphic picture of Jesus' death. But if I was to press you and say, Show me Jesus' resurrection from the Old Testament. Anything come to mind immediately? We don't think about that part. We tend to skip it, but there are scriptures that talk about Jesus' resurrection in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Peter in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, this, this bursting forth of the church, this church heading out into the world, Peter quotes Psalm 16. And in Psalm 16 it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Peter picks that up and says, he wasn't talking about David, because I can see David's tomb. I can go visit that today. He's talking about somebody else. He's talking about the son of David, Jesus Christ, who was risen from the dead, and he proves it from the Old Testament. He, he brings it from the Old Testament. Another one that's a little dodgier, but Jesus said it, so I think we're okay. Matthew chapter 12, he talks about this generation, this wicked generation seeks a sign. The Pharisees kept coming to him. They watch him do this great miracle, heal somebody. They'd hear him preach these wonderful sermons, and they would look at him and say, well, do a sign so that we can believe you. And Jesus' response to them is, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And what was the sign of Jonah? Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. That was the sign of Jonah. So according to that, there's an example of Jesus' resurrection from the Old Testament. But even if you back up a second, Isaiah 53, remember I said that was all about his suffering? Littered throughout that is promise in Isaiah 53. For example, Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. And then the next thing Isaiah says is, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So even in the midst of announcing the death and the crucifixion of the suffering servant, there's the promise that his days will be prolonged and he will see his offspring. There's hope in that. And verse 12 does a similar thing. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. Wait a minute. Dead people don't divide the spoil with the strong. Dead people just kind of lay in a tomb and rot. But Isaiah is promising, because he has he is sacrificed his soul, because he's poured out his soul to death, 
There's a time coming when he will divide the spoil with the, with the strong. There is hope in Jesus' resurrection, even in the Old Testament passages. So then the next thing that he talks about is he says this thing about he appeared to 500 and then uh, most of those are still alive. And then he paid to James and then to all the apostles and then to me. And I have used this as a proof text for defending the, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul sounds like he really believes it, doesn't he? Does he sound like he's somebody who's deleted himself? And he says, look, if you don't believe me, there's 500 witnesses you can go talk to. Most of them still alive. You can go talk to them and ask. I don't think that's why he brings that up at this point, though. It's an appropriate way to use it in apologetics, and I'm not going to stop. So don't you either. But if we want to be true to what Paul has to say here, what Paul is doing is he says, he, he recites the creedal statement at the beginning about Jesus' death and resurrection. And then he says, look, this is believed by the church. This is what the church has always believed. There's 500, there's the apostles, there's the 12, there's me. The church has always believed this. And what he's asking the, the Corinthians is, do you believe this? Do you still believe this to be true? This is the gospel that was preached to you, that Jesus died and that according to the scriptures, he was raised. Do you still believe it? Because the rest of the church does. And that's kind of where he's pushing them to. In the end, he says, but he, he acknowledges that he was a persecutor of the church, but he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So even there, Paul is saying, look, it's not about me. And do you remember a couple of months ago, we talked about these different patterns of grace that God brings into our life, and I said what grace was. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's unmerited. It's God's unmerited favor. It's his, his positive disposition to you, not because you've earned it. It's unmerited. You can't be good enough to have God suddenly show his goodness to you. It's God deciding, I'm going to fix my love on this person. So Paul here says, look, I was a persecutor of the church, and because of God's grace, I am who I am now. What was Paul doing at the time that Jesus called him that would make God so happy with him that he would pour his grace on him? He was killing his saints. Jesus came to him and said, Paul, why do you persecute me? That's why it's grace, is it's unmerited. Paul didn't earn it, and Paul knew he didn't earn it, and Paul's sounding here like he's, he knows he doesn't deserve it. God, you have just been gracious to me, and I, I love that. I, I think that's wonderful. So it's unmerited, and it's favor. Now, favor has a bunch of different meanings in English, but basically at the root of what it means is positive disposition, love towards a positive inclination toward this person. I have fixed my favor on you, so I will do great things for you. And it's, so it's God's favor, but it's God's, it's not man's. One of the problems is when, we, when we're trying to figure out, am I doing well or not, we look for faces. When I'm preaching, sometimes I'll look around and say, you know, I made a good point there, did it stick? And you see people kind of going, like, ah, it didn't work. Maybe I'll come at that again a different way, see if I can help. We look to faces to understand are we connecting? Are we making this right? What do you think of me? How am I doing here? God's, one of his attributes is he's invisible. So we can't look to God's face and say, oh, he's, he's pleased with me. So we tend to wind up looking to other people. And so we can sometimes forget that God's favor is God's when he shows it, even when the faces around us are not smiling, even when they're frowning. It's God's 
unmerited favor. That's what grace is. And it comes to us in various ways, even when we're having difficulties, even when we're suffering. We can know God's unmerited favor is on me because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's Paul's point. Is he says, it was God's grace on me that led me to do these things. It wasn't me doing them. I was simply walking in God's good favor. He blessed everything I did. Every time I preached in a synagogue, he made it a fruitful discussion. He brought people to him or pushed them away from him. That was God's grace. And so this is the point he brings back to the Corinthians. He says, that's how I came to you. Earlier in the letter, he said, look, I didn't come with clever speech. I didn't come with, with huge signs and power and, and entourage and, and riches and come marching in there. I came in weakness and in brokenness. It was God's grace that's working in me that brought you the gospel, that brought you to believe. And so he ends that section with, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So the, the message here is that at the center of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is the uniform message from the church. It is the message by which you have been saved. It's the message by which we are saved. And the question Paul throws before us is, do you believe it? Do you trust it? Do you believe that Jesus was risen from the dead? That's the, that's the challenge for us this morning. Now, what he's going to do next is he's going to take their philosophy and flip it back on them. Um, and, and he asked the question then, what if Christ isn't raised? What happens then? So here's the next section. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are above men to be pitied. So here's what he says. He says, look, there are some of you Corinthians. Now, it's not the whole Corinthian church was embracing this error. There were some among them who were teaching an error, and they were either tolerating it or being influenced by it. So he says, some of you are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. They're, they're clinging to their Greek philosophy. This, this mortal body is, is filth. It's, it's rags. We don't need it. We're going to throw it away. So Christian, don't worry about your physical body. It's going to be gone. And so what Paul does is he says, now hold on for a second. If if some of you are teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead, then the implication of that is Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Because Jesus has a physical body just like us. He took on humanity onto his divinity in order to come and be with us. And if his humanity did not rise from the grave, then we're, in, we're stuck in our sins. So if you deny the idea that humans rise from the dead, you're denying that Jesus rose from the dead. The implication of that is, and Paul will develop it later, we're not going to get to it, is we will be raised just as he was raised. That's the implication. But what happens if Jesus isn't raised? Let's go with their presupposition that, that there's no physical resurrection. The body's immaterial. doesn't matter. What does that mean? He says, if Christ wasn't raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is futile. If Christ isn't raised, our preaching is pointless. 
It's just spitting air into the air. And your faith, what you've put your trust in, is utter garbage, useless, doesn't do a thing. And the problem here is, he says, if Christ isn't raised, then you're still in your sins. This week, I listened to a podcast. They were interviewing uh, evangelicals, trying to understand evangelicals. I think it's a worthwhile thing. I try to understand evangelicals, and I am one. But they were talking about, um, about the recent election, and they said, well, you know, maybe some people would look at these folks and say they're not really Christians. So let's ask them the question, what is the gospel? And they asked 10 evangelicals that question. They only broadcast four of them. And all four of them gave really good answers. But do you know what all four did? The exact same thing I've done in the past. They left Jesus in the tomb. What's the gospel? Jesus died for your sins. And so because he died for our sins, we can have a relationship with God. And I thought, half an amen. (laughs) Because that's only half the story. Yes, it's absolutely true. Jesus died for our sins. That's the message of Isaiah 53. He bore our iniquities. When Jesus went to the cross, our sin was hanging on him, and he bore the weight of it. He bore the brunt of God's wrath at our sins. Amen. Absolutely true. And after he hung on the cross, he died. He physically expired. He stopped, his heart stopped beating. His brain activity went to nil. He died. He was taken off the, tomb, off the cross and laid in a tomb. And he stayed there overnight. He stayed there the next day, and early the next morning he rose. The problem is when we forget to bring Jesus out of the grave, we're forgetting half the gospel. Because the good news of the gospel is not just Jesus bore your sin. The good news of the gospel is Jesus defeated your foes. He took away all opposition to you by dying on that cross. What your greatest foes are is sin, which keeps you from God, and death which will ultimately really keep you from God. And Jesus comes and he takes our sin upon himself. He faces death straight on and says, give me all you've got. And death took him down from the cross and killed him. And then he rose again. So you see how if you don't get the second half of the gospel, if you don't get the resurrection, you're missing the power. You see, the problem is if we say Jesus died and that he didn't rise again, How can it be that we're still in our sins? His death was for our justification, wasn't it? His resurrection is for our justification. That's right out of uh, Romans. Paul says that he was raised for our justification. I thought he died for our justification. I thought we were justified by faith. How do we put this together? Well, here's the problem. If Jesus died and didn't come back to life, what it means is, in his case, case, death won. Death was justified. And why is there death in the world? Death is not part of creation. It's not part of how the natural order of things is supposed to be. It's an invader, an invasive species that comes and consumes. Before Adam and Eve fell in the garden, there was no death. In the end, when all is said and done, there will be no death. That comes from Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death will be done away with at some point. So it'll be over. As a matter of fact, 2 Timothy 1.10 says, or Paul calls Jesus our Savior who abolished death. So death is not the permanent state of things. If Jesus died, then none of that's true. And if he died, then he must have rightly died if he stayed dead. 
And if he rightly died, it meant that he was a sinner. And if Jesus Christ was a sinner, he couldn't bear our sins and carry them away. He would be only be able to pay for his own. So when it says that by his resurrection we are justified, it shows that God said yes to that sacrifice. It shows that God said when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he stands at the right hand of God interceding for us. This past week, Lisa and I were out on the boulevard. We took Linus, our little puppy, out. He makes friends everywhere he goes. And we met some people. They came up and they said, hey, we have a survey. We have a question we'd like to ask you. And uh, we said, sure. And what they were doing is evangelism explosion. They were saying, you know, if you were to die today and you were to go to heaven and God said, why should I let you in my heaven? What would you say? And I think that's a wonderful diagnostic question. It really is a good diagnostic. And so we kind of played along with them for a little bit before we said, well, yeah, we're believers and actually I'm a pastor. Didn't want to discourage them. But what Lisa said was, she said, well, I would say that you'd have to let me in because of, my, because of good works. And you could see them all ping up and she said, but not my good works. And it's like, exactly. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He gives us all righteousness and so we go. And so my answer was, well, if God met me at the gate and said, why should I let you in heaven? I would just lean over, point through the gate and say, I'm with him. Amen. That's right. The only way I get into heaven is I'm with him. He, he's, he's the one who let me in. If Jesus died and is still dead and is still in the grave, I can't point through the gate and say I'm with him. I have to have a risen savior. So that's what Paul goes with this. Is he says, look, Corinthians, do you really want to say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Is that really where you want to go? Because if you do, you've lost the gospel. You have lost hope in Jesus Christ if you say there's no resurrection from the dead. And that's where he kind of leaves them is with that, that question. But then he says, that's a precarious place to leave. And that's a really dangerous place to leave somebody. If you ever do apologetics or if you're ever talking with somebody and they have a, an inconsistent worldview and you assume it and then you push them to the edge, don't leave them there. Because if we left the Corinthians here, there would be some of them go, well, I guess that Jesus didn't rise from the dead then. And we don't want that. What Paul's doing here is he's risking a lot in order to draw the Corinthians in, to say, come, wait a minute, it gets better. And so where he finishes this is because he lives. And this is how he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Happy Easter. Amen. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by man death came death, by a man comes also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all would be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen. So this is where Paul says, come back to me, Corinthians. You believe the gospel. You believe the great news that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again, triumphant over all your enemies. Come back to me. And he invites them to come along. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then the great news is Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He is the first fruits. If there's a first fruits, what does that imply? 
there's a second fruits and a third fruits. There's another harvest coming. And so by Jesus rising from the dead, he's promising our resurrection. He's promising that we will be the harvest that he brings in. He's the prototype. He is the, the initial bursting forth of resurrection power. And at his coming, those who are his will be raised in a similar manner, just like him. That's what was referred to as the first resurrection. And that comes from Revelation uh, chapter 20. Uh, in there it says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Amen. There is a, a first resurrection, but there's no second resurrection. The second is death. The first resurrection is Jesus comes, his saints rise, and they rule with him. The second resurrection is when all the dead are brought up and judged, and that's referred to as the second death. Those who are not his are, are cast into the lake of fire. They're done away with. So the promise that we have is that we can be part of the first resurrection. We can look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, I want to do that. I want to look like that. That's how I want to be raised. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, or delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. Now, if you remember when we were going through the book of Luke, do you remember how I defined the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God was not a chunk of real estate. It wasn't a group of people. It was authority. And we saw that because in Luke, Luke tells a parable about a man who goes off to a foreign country to receive his kingdom. And when he returns, he returns to the people and the plot of real estate. So he didn't go to get his kingdom and then bring back land and people. He went off to a foreign country to be given the authority and the power to rule over this plot of land and these people. So the kingdom of God in its broadest sense is God's authority. So then what's going on here? How is it that when an end comes, Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father? What he's saying here and, and what follows after it really explains that. He says, after he has destroyed every rule and authority and power, and the last one to be destroyed is death. What happened was in the fall, remember he pointed to Adam? He said, in the fall, death came. Because Adam sinned, we have been separated from God. We have a gap between us and God. Jesus Christ comes in the fullness of time. At the right time, Jesus Christ comes and says, I'm going to repair that. I'm going to draw people back to God. That is the extension of God's kingdom. His authority is spreading. Now, at the present time, what we see is Jesus has ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God. And so how is his kingdom spreading here on earth? It's spreading through the harvest, through us. That's what we're doing. That's what we're, we're supposed to be doing is bringing the kingdom to the, the ends of the earth. We live in obedience to God and we call other people to obedience. And it's not obedience like put on these handcuffs, put on this hair shirt uh, and suffer through it all. Obedience to Jesus Christ is fullness of joy. My yoke is light. My burden is easy. That's the promise. And that's what we're inviting people to. And we're hoping, we're, we're leading them to hope in the, in the resurrection, the first resurrection. So when Jesus says that he's bringing this, his gospel is continuing to go throughout all the earth. He's gathering more and more people to himself. He's drawing more and more people into the joy of knowing him and knowing his father through him. And when the full number of the Gentiles comes in, when all the people have been gathered that Jesus is going to save, then at the end, 
he hands it all over to God the Father and says, it's all subject to you. And the last one, the very last one to be struck down, the last enemy to be utterly destroyed is death. Because even though Jesus is risen from the dead, don't we keep dying? Saints have been doing it for a long time. I got bad news, folks. All of you are dying right now. By degrees, in little bits, we're all, we're all dying. And there'll be a come a time when, our, when we close our eyes in death, and that's it. But if you're in Jesus Christ, here's what you need to remember. That foe has been defeated. He may come and put chains on you now. Those chains are like paper. They're going to be gone. Jesus will return, and we will rise again to life. And the life that we rise to is not spiritual life where we're floating on clouds in white robes playing harps. That'd be no fun. <laughs> the life that we're promised is this physical body will be raised again in newness. It will be brought back together and you will walk in the same physical body you carried with you. That's why he argues with the Corinthians, look, you guys, don't tell me the physical body doesn't matter. It does matter. It's not a temporary container. It's not a Coke bottle. You pour the Coke out and throw it away. This is what you're going to inhabit for eternity. Where we go in the end is the new heavens and the new earth. That's physical. It's tangible. But it's set free from sin, set free from futility, set free from corruption. Death has been thrown away. We can't conceive of it now. But Jesus Christ's resurrection brings the promise of all of this. We get that first glimpse, that first little taste of what's waiting for us. So your body does matter. It is important. Don't ever fall to that misunderstanding that what I do in the body doesn't matter. It's, it's, it, does, it just doesn't matter to anybody. What's really important is what, what's going on in my spirit. Both of them matter. We're integrated wholes, and God will one day bring them both to, to, uh, to glory. So I just want to remind you one thing that Paul said from 1 Corinthians 6, where he was beginning to talk about that issue of sexual immorality in the stomach and food, that's just weird. Right in the middle of it, he says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. That's why the body matters. It's because we will be raised by his power. Let's pray. Lord, what a glorious Easter message to hear the risen Savior proclaimed. And Lord, um, I know people who don't believe it because dead people don't rise. Dead people die. And Lord, I think that's exactly your point. Dead people don't rise, not unless you intercede. And so we heard from Ezekiel this morning, bones, not just bones, but dry bones. Why did they come back to life? Why did they stand up? Why did they have um, flesh and bone put on them? Because you told them to. And so Lord, the same thing is, is, is pictured here in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dead people don't live. Dead people rot until you tell us otherwise. And Lord, we thank you that we get to see that so beautifully, so clearly, so perfectly in our, our glorious Savior, risen from the dead and standing at your right hand as a testimony to you of our righteousness in him, as a testimony to us of the promise of the resurrection. Lord, be glorified, we pray in us, in other churches in the Antelope Valley that are clinging to the resurrection, to the glorious news of Jesus Christ, the resurrection gospel. It's in his name we ask, amen.